increasingly, I hope people are all aware by now of how essential sleep is to our basic well-being. You want to talk about like hormonal impacts, what happens to your cortisol level when you're getting poor sleep, what happens to your adrenaline levels when you're getting poor sleep, depression, anxiety, which women experience at twice the rates of men are causally linked to sleep disruptions. From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, on health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, everybody. In 2019, I had the opportunity and wonderful experience of interviewing Emily Nagoski, author of the phenomenal book and phenomenal sensation, Come As You Are. Emily, as you'll learn, is a sex educator really dedicated to our well-being as part of our whole experience of being humans. The reason I'm doing this as a rerun is two things. One, as you'll listen to the podcast, Emily and I talk about the importance of sleep, rest and restoration. And when one is creating a podcast every week, it's very demanding. And sometimes we need a moment to be able to step back and think about and reflect on what's next and take a pause from being in constant creator mode into more receptive thinking and replenishing mode. And that's what I'm doing. And I hope you're having some time to do this if you're listening when this rerun is playing at the end of the year in holiday season. Another reason that I'm sharing this episode now is that a lot's happened since I first released the podcast, which is namely the pandemic. And the pandemic has changed a lot of our awareness around sex and a lot of new conversations have come up. For example, just a few weeks ago, the clitoris was featured as a major article in the New York Times, vibrator sales have gone through the roof with people living alone and needing to find new ways to experience pleasure and relief. And that's brought whole new levels of conversation. In addition, some of the things that Emily and I talk about around low libido are really relevant for women in perimenopause and menopause. Not that that symptom of low libido happens only then. It can happen in our 20s, 30s, 40s, etc. But it is more common during that phase of time. And menopause, as it should, is having a moment as half of all American women are in or entering that phase. So whole new conversations often are great to pepper with like new interviews, but sometimes it's really valuable to go back and listen to some of the wisdom that we already have in our back pocket. And with that, I share a rerun of this wonderful interview where Emily drops a lot of wisdom on us. So even if you heard this episode before, I guarantee you listening now, you're going to hear things in a new way because you're in a new place in your life. So without further ado, please enjoy this incredible interview with phenomenal Emily Nagoski. My guest today is someone I am so excited to meet and share with you. 
Emily Nagoski began her career as a sex educator in 1995 as a peer health educator at the University of Delaware, trained to teach her fellow undergraduates about stress, nutrition, physical activity, and above all, sex. Soon she added sexual violence prevention and response to that work, and suddenly she was a sex educator. She went to Indiana University for a master's of science in counseling psychology, completed a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute for Sexual Health Clinic, and then continued on to earn a PhD in health behavior, with a concentration in human sexuality. For eight years, she worked as a lecturer and director of wellness education at Smith College before transitioning to full-time writing and speaking. Her job now is to travel all over the world training therapists, medical professionals, college students, and the general public about the science of women's sexual well-being. Emily is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, which I couldn't recommend more, Come As You Are, and the Come As You Are workbook, as well as three guides for Ian Kerner's goodinbed.com and her own blog, The Dirty Normal. Emily, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Me too. So I have a question for you before we jump in. What mm -hmm. is the most inclusive language that you like to use that we can use together in this interview as we talk about people and sex, and especially since my audience is largely self-defined or biologically born as women? So... The way I typically approach this question of bodies versus cultural identity is with a caveat that almost all of the research that exists on sexuality is on cisgender people. These are people who, on the day they're born, the adults around them look at their bodies and go, it's a boy or it's a girl. And then they raise that person as a boy or a girl. And that person grows comfortable in the psychological identity and the social role of man or woman. And we all know that there are people who identify as men or women for whom at least one of those things is not true. And there are people who identify as something other than man and woman. Those people deserve to be represented in the research. They deserve access to high-quality, evidence-based sex education. And the research is not there yet. So if we can include a caveat that when we talk about the research on how sexuality works, when we talk about evidence-based interventions around sexuality, we are just talking about cisgender people and at the same time, I have no particular reason to believe that these things are different for trans or non-binary identified folks. There's no particular reason why that should be true. But because the research isn't there yet, I can't necessarily say. The research is also really heteronormative. Even just it the other day, I read straight, a middle class, white, premenopausal women. Oh, my gosh. I just read a study this morning on... Sexual dysfunction, we're going to talk about what that means. I'm doing air quotes here when I use that term. It was a study done of like several hundred women in perimenopause looking at sexual dysfunction as they defined it in the article. And then the end of the article, they say, this study only included white women. I was like, what? Ugh. Well, at least they said it, honestly. Yeah. But I was just like, I know. Even the studies where they include women of color, it's like 90% white women. And this is one of those dirty secrets of sex research that they don't talk about. But, I mean, it's bad enough when studies are reported in the mainstream media as about people's sexuality and actually it was a study on rats or something. They talk about the results of a human-based study but it was all like white heterosexual middle class American 
premenopausal straight women married to dudes. Yes, it's not very representative at all. It's yes, really exciting, though. And I, like, times are changing. I feel like that we're even having this conversation is, is actually really exciting. Yeah, I think it is absolutely getting better. If we take the long view, like the last hundred years, we've made so much progress. But it's hard to remember that sort of like when you're here on the ground looking at how far we still have to go. I was just talking on a different podcast with a black woman who is a comedian and performer. And I was talking about the research and the way sex researchers actually do these studies. For example, if you want to study what happens in the brain during orgasm, you have to have a research subject come into your laboratory and masturbate to orgasm in an fMRI machine. And her response was, there's not black people who are going to be willing to do that. (laughs) It's so interesting. Well, also, it kind of reminds me, too, of I remember there was a study that came out and the title was something like this. Simulated home birth environment in an observed hospital setting. And I thought, wow, totally missed the point there. Right. Like. It, how much simulated <laughs> home environment? Oh my God. Right. So it's a little bit like how much is orgasm in an fMRI fully right. like a woman's experience at home anyway. In your brain when you're at home. Absolutely. Yeah. And how much is the orgasm of a person who is able to have an orgasm in an fMRI? Is, is that the same as the orgasm of a person who's like, I would never volunteer for that study? Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about. And just to give a caveat too about why I was doing that project when I was in sixth grade was I had had such a positive, wonderful early childhood exposure to this couple of gay men. And I was like kind of trying to understand what was happening in the world, which was not positive at all. And that was what inspired me to to do that project. So I wasn't trying to do some weird study just for my listeners who know. <laughs> like, that was the intent of the study. Okay. So you started your career in 1995. So you've been doing this a while. Was there a defining moment? Like you're in college, you're doing this work, teaching, like what got you to actually teach your fellow undergraduates about the things you were teaching about? And then how did sex become the center of your focus? Yeah, the beginning of the story is very not inspiring. Uh, I was a big nerd in high school. So when I got to college, I knew I would be going to grad school for something, but I had no idea what. So I thought I need some volunteer work on my resume to begin making me look like a good candidate for grad school. I <laughs> love it. Right. And uh, a guy on my floor was like, hey, peer, come be a peer health educator for me. He was pre-med, which is why he was a peer health educator. And I was like, I like health. Why not? So I did. I applied and I got accepted and I started getting trained to go into residence halls to talk about all kinds of health issues. But when we started talking about the sexuality stuff and my training as an undergraduate peer health educator, this is the fall semester of 1995, a strange thing happened. When my trainer started using all these genital words saying vagina, vulva, clitoris, scrotum, penis, everyone in the room went, <laughs> Right. And like had this freak out reaction and I did not. Mm. And I thought, okay, so that might be something that there might be something happening there with how I'm different from other people. And then by the time I got to my undergrad degree, which my undergrad degree is in psychology with minors in philosophy and cognitive science, I was going to be a clinical neuropsychologist. I wanted to work with people with traumatic brain injury and stroke. I love the brain stuff. I still do. I use that science all the time. I'm grateful that I have that intellectual background, but When it came to the end of my undergraduate degree, I looked at what I had done over the previous years and the work I was doing as a sex educator made me like who I am as a human being in a way that the academic intellectual brain stuff just couldn't. And so that's the path I chose. 
Oh, I love that you say it that way. I love that it made you like who you are as a human being. I've never heard anyone describe their passion and career that way before. That's beautiful. So now it's 1995. You finish your graduate work by what, like 2000? Uh, my overall graduate work? Yeah. No, I finished my PhD in uh, 2006. It oh took my me gosh. three years to so get long, each wrong. of them. I took. I finished my undergrad in three years, and then I took a year off. I finished my master's degree in three years, and then I took a year off. And then I finished my PhD in three years, and then I took a year off. So, okay, it's still been a long time between 2006 and 2019. You've got a yeah. lot of experience under your belt. The whole time I was in grad school, I was working as a college health educator, working at the college health service at Indiana University is where I got both of my graduate degrees. So and uh, at the Kinsey Institute as a sex educator, like I was working part time jobs the whole time I was teaching human sexuality. And also I was teaching a sex education class like I was doing the work at the same time that I was getting the degrees. So we both agree, like if you look at 100 years ago, even we look at, let's say, the turn of the century, the 20th century, where women could be locked up for hysteria, which could mean having a baby right. and not being married, right? Or female circumcision was done in the United States. We've definitely made some progress here. But where are we now in the scheme of <laughs> healthy sexuality as women? I mean, we're living in a pretty crazy time with our current administration and it's less than stellar mm. sexual standards <laughs> of how women are talked to and treated. It's a really terrifying and interesting time, right? This contrast between some things getting better and some things actually seeming like we're kind of going backwards or maybe there's just a light on something that's been kind of operational all the time. I think that's partly true too. What, where are we right now in the scheme of things? When I think about what it feels like to be a sex educator now as opposed to 20 years ago or even just 10 years ago, the main thing that I feel like is different is the presence of sexual violence survivors in the room talking about sexual pleasure. The Me Too movement in particular has made, I think, a permanent difference, a real shift in validating the stories of sexual assault survivors. And so they are coming to classes that are focused on sexual pleasure. They are talking about survivorship and the way it impacted their relationship with their sexuality, sexual pleasure, their own bodies. And they are taking steps to reclaim access to sexual pleasure in defiance of everything that our culture says a woman is supposed to do. They're just going ahead and being like, you know what, I have a right to control my own body and to access the pleasure that is my birthright. That has felt like a really big change in the last 10 years. That's very huge. Thank it's you good. for sharing that. It's really, really good. There's more good news too Please. around trans folks and non-binary folks. Uh, it, when even so in 2014 is when Come As You Are went to press and I had to fight through three copy editors to keep the singular they. Mm in my book and to even have a caveat in Come As You Are that mentioned that the science is pretty exclusively cis, het, men and women. Just mentioning that, my editor was really worried that it was gonna be alienating and certainly they weren't gonna use the singular they because it was ungrammatical. Um, so I think Come As You Are was the first book Simon and Sue Schuster published that uh, has the singular they throughout and uh, it is now, as of 2019, I was able to take out 
some of the more hedging language around trans and non-binary folks. And I can just assume that a reader has an awareness that trans and non-binary folks exist and they deserve sexual pleasure too. Things have absolutely gotten better in terms of like the mainstream visibility of and acceptance of trans and non-binary folks. That's getting better slowly. There's a definite shift in women's sexuality that I'm seeing in what is sometimes being called the sex positive movement. And on the one hand, I feel like there's amazing liberation happening, like 60% of women own at least one vibrator, and we can read about it in a newsstand magazine, like you can be on the train and read about it if you want to with somebody looking over your shoulder. And it's we're in a different time than, let's say, even 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. And even anal is a sitcom topic, right? So Mm -hmm. this is like a great shift in in one way. But on the other hand, I'm seeing something and hearing something from women who are coming up to me, you know, at conferences, if we're talking about sexual health in my patient population, and especially from young women in hetero relationships, but from women in general, that this new normal of kind of like a certain edge of sex positive is pushing them in a way that they're not comfortable with. They feel like They're not prudish, but there are things they don't necessarily feel comfortable with or want to do. Hitting, spanking, you know. And I find myself actually trying to integrate some of what I'm seeing and hearing. So, for example, I was speaking on a panel recently about postpartum sexual health. And there was a woman, I'm not exactly sure why she was on the panel, because she's not a psychologist, sex therapist, or a parent, but she was talking. She was really great. I'm not like a butt then, but she then said as part of her talk that she likes getting the hell beat out of her. And I thought maybe I misheard that. And then she actually reiterated and I was like, is that just making me uncomfortable? Or is there a line as a woman doctor midwife who cares about women that I'm feeling like, what is the place of some level of sexual violence or pushing the edge in a way that women aren't comfortable with, but they feel like they have to go toward. And then just to kind of add to that a little bit in context, I don't know if you've read Gail Dines at all, Pornland. The science is not awesome. In her book, you mean? Yeah. Okay. So she talks about some of this new normal happening as a filter down from porn. I'm just really curious personally what you think about all this. Yeah, that's an enormous It's like a big question. mishmash, but a big <laughs> mishmash of stuff. But, you know, I want to be able to help guide women. I, I usually just say to women, look, if you're not comfortable with something, then yeah. talking about it is the most important thing to do. And if you're in a sexual relationship where you can't talk about this, then that's something to think about, too. For me, the definition of sex positivity is simply that everyone gets to choose how and when their body is touched and they get to choose how they feel about their body. Just basic bodily autonomy for me is what sex positivity really means. Everybody gets to be in control of their own body. And part of what comes with that is you may have an emotional reaction to the idea of what somebody else likes. It may appeal to you. It may make you sexually drawn to them. It may disgust you and make you want to create distance between yourself and them. It doesn't matter because their sex life has nothing to do with you in the Mm -hmm. same way your sex life has nothing to do with them. So for me, sex positivity is just this neutrality. Part of my training as a sex educator is exposure to a bunch of porn, like every kind of porn you can imagine and many kinds of porn you don't want to imagine uh, from all across history. Uh, And a lot of it is really violent. Almost all of it is misogynist uh, because 
that's also true of the world that produced the porn. And it's it's my job to be able to hear a person's stories and not react in a judgmental, critical, emotionally disgusted way to be really neutral and to hear like, if you want to talk about poop play, you can talk about poop play. And I am not a person who's going to respond negatively to that. If you want to talk about how you like to have the shit beat out of you, okay, you can talk about that with me. And I'm not going to have a judgment one way or the other. That's my job. Because if I have a reaction that is sort of the mainstream cultural reaction of, I like to be smacked while I'm having sex and I go, then are you going to trust me as a sex educator? Of course, right, right. Right, exactly. So that's one thing that for me, sex positivity is just everybody gets to do what works for them and their body. Um, And then the other piece of it is that porn is really terrible sex education. I tend to say that trying to learn about sex from porn is like trying to learn how to drive by watching NASCAR. Those are professionals (gasps) on a closed course with pit crews. You are not going to learn how to drive on a regular highway by watching professionals do a spectacular thing or like learning how to wrestle by watching WWF. Like that's entertainment. People don't necessarily have sex in those positions that they do in porn in real life. Those are positions that look really interesting on camera or those are positions that give the camera access to the genitals. Those are not necessarily positions that give the people having that sex a great deal of pleasure. In fact, the focus of porn is not the pleasure of the people who are engaging in that sex with each other, but rather on what it looks like on camera. So it's really bad sex education. And in a context where in America, we in a lot of states, we're still allowed to lie to children about the efficacy of contraception or about sexual orientation. We're still allowed to talk about abstinence until marriage. Our sex education is so terrible. Of course, young people are looking on the internet, they're finding porn, and that's filling in the vacuum that we have left for them. Add to that uh, adult caregivers who uh, don't feel awesome talking about sex with their kids. I had uh, a person who read Come As You Are tweeted at me that she was watching her adult brother change his baby daughter's diaper. And she was all clean and ready for her new diaper. Dad goes and gets the new diaper. When he comes back, she is touching her own genitals, the little baby. And dad goes, "Uh uh-uh, don't touch that. I was just talking about this on a podcast interview the other day. Someone asked me about sexual health. And I said, well, you know, it really starts at that moment. Our own sexual comfort starts at that very moment. And I talked about Little girls, I think with little boys, we tolerate it more actually than we do with little girls. 100%. Yeah. What would that dad have said or done if his little baby had had a penis and when he came back, his baby was touching his own genitals? Totally different reaction. Or if his baby had found her feet instead. We love it when babies find their feet. And put them in their mouth. Right? Like, oh, that's so cute. You'll find your feet. What if we had that same emotional reaction when they find their genitals? Genitals are wonderful. What a gift they are and how much fun it is when our babies find their genitals. Yay! So for my undergraduate, I had to do an undergraduate final paper. It was like my summer, sort of my, what brought all my women's health studies together. And for me, I actually, my husband was a high school principal at the time. And I took the sex ed class, the high school students in this particular class. And 
did a, a series of kind of like a a focus group with them on what their ideal of sex education is. And what they shared with me was the big takeaway. We just want to know what the right terms are and then be able to use those to ask you any questions we want to. That, that was really what their ideal of sex education was. Like, tell us everything that we don't know. And, and it was, it was really amazing. I mean, everything from, you know, being in high school, not knowing how to put on a condom to, talking about a diaphragm, but not knowing what their cervix is Mm -hmm. to positions. There's a lot of misinformation that is perpetuated way into people's adult sexuality about how long a man really takes to orgasm, right? Which is like a lot shorter than we are led to think in many ways or women being able to achieve orgasm in two seconds in a TV show with just penetration. There's so much misinformation. What do you think, starting with babies touching themselves while we're changing their diapers, what is really great sex education? What does that look like? For me, when adults are trying to communicate effectively with young people about sexuality, the most important thing is that they be aware of and try to process their own emotional baggage, all the crap we absorbed from our culture about sexuality that we begin communicating to our children without even knowing that we ever possessed that baggage. My go-to example in my own life is the day... I was at the library, I was about 11 years old, and I must have seen the word vagina in a book because on the drive home with my mom, I said, hey, mom, what's a vagina? And I do not remember what she said, but I remember the enormous flash of emotion that just shot through her body, the embarrassment and the shame and sort of horror and disgust. And I was like, I still don't know what this vagina thing is, but I do know how to feel about this vagina thing. So when I got home and looked it up in the medical encyclopedia in our house, I then knew what it was. And I knew from my mother how I was supposed to feel about it. And I'm sure people hearing my story about like a child touching her own genitals have a flash of emotion and a contradictory story. A therapist who came to one of my trainings pulled me aside after a thing. was like, I have to tell you the story about my child. When she was two years old, she was on the bouncy ball, the hippity hop ball. And she said, mommy, this feels really good. <laughs> and mom says, yeah, honey, that's your clitoris. And the child, two years old, says, my clitoris is my favorite. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. And there are some people who are hearing that story and they're like, yes. And there are other people hearing that story who are like, oh. And they might not even be able to explain what it is about the idea of a little girl learning to love her own clitoris that makes them feel worried or disgusted or ashamed or angry. And that has a name that's called moral dumbfounding when you don't know what's wrong about it, but something inside you just tells you that it's not right. And that's the old stuff. That is exactly the stuff to notice happening in your body and process it and try on the idea of viewing your child's relationship with their genitals in the same way you view their relationship with their feet and their elbows and their face. Like you want them to cherish their own body, right? What if their relationship with their genitals is basically the same as their relationship with all their other parts? Yeah, there are cultural rules they have to follow and there might be hygiene rules. I have a sex educator friend who tells her daughters, we don't touch our vulvas at the dinner table. (laughs) That's fair, right? 
And if you're going to touch those parts, you do those at home in your own room. That's fair. And you don't have to introduce the idea of shame and disgust and hiding. The emotion that goes with it doesn't have to be like shutting the person down and teaching them to dislike their own body. Hello, this is Dr. Aviva. Wait, why is my phone ringing on the podcast? Because I've got something really special for you. And it's called Let's Chat About That. If you've ever wished you could just call me up personally and ask your most pressing, hard to find questions about all things women's health, hormones, pregnancy, birth, motherhood, menopause, and more, and children's health questions, guess what? Now you can. All you have to do is call me at 413-889-4549. That's 413-889-4549. And leave a voicemail. You'll find all the instructions you need at the end of that number when you call it. I'll select and answer questions to talk about in upcoming Let's Chat About That podcast segments. So whether you're wanting to know more about your menstrual cycle, birth control, how to improve your fertility, tips for escaping the perfectionism cycle, endometriosis management, menopause, pregnancy, birth, or more, or you have questions about your children's health, this is your chance. There's no question that's silly, TMI, or off limits. And I can't wait to give you the evidence-based answers and conversations you're looking for. Make sure to share this with someone you know who may also want to ask me their most burning questions. Okay, what are you waiting for? Give me a call and get my phone ringing. I think too, and not to say that awareness is protection against micro and macro aggressions and assault against women. But I think for me, at least my sense of it is that when we feel more confident in our bodies, we're more aligned with our bodies. We actually trust our inner radar for safety a little bit more too. It truly is. No, it's a preventive intervention to teach people to love their own bodies. Body self-criticism, body shame is a very powerful predictor, not just of sexual dysfunction and sexual pain, but also unwanted pregnancy, unintended pregnancy and sexually transmitted infection, not using condoms and protection. Because of course, if you feel shut off from your body, if you feel like your body doesn't deserve to be healthy, if you feel like you're, all you want is to make sure this person is willing to engage with you sexually so that you can feel loved and appreciated. And you don't want to offer any more reasons for them not to engage with you sexually, like asking to use a condom, then you're not going to ask for that. You truly are protecting your kids when you're teaching them to turn toward their own body with kindness and compassion and trust. A thing we teach girls in particular is to believe other people's opinions about their bodies more than they believe their own internal experience. In burnout, Amelia and I call it human giver syndrome, where we teach women and girls, if you get raised as it's a girl, what you get taught is that you have a moral obligation to be pretty happy yet calm, generous, and above all, attentive to the needs of others. So if your internal experience is inconvenient or distressing to the people around you, you start wearing the mask. You start dismissing and ignoring your own internal experience because everyone around you needs you not to feel that way. And so you just 
don't feel that way. I call it helper syndrome. And there's some yeah. really interesting data too, when we talk about this syndrome that from sociologic studies that look at what's now called emotional labor, this right. work that women do to tend to the emotional needs of everyone else. And it can be at a board meeting. You could be the CEO of a company and you could still be doing it to the other right. people, predominantly the men in the room. It's a hidden cause of exhaustion that I think a lot of us don't realize we're carrying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We have the responsibility to put the smile on our faces and go, mm-hmm, mm, mm-hmm. Thank you for that feedback. I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> And let me apologize for myself too. Yeah. And you know, it's actually not that sort of like helping other people regulate their emotions. That's the problem. It's the imbalance. That's the problem that women are carrying the entire burden of helping the men in the room cope with their uncomfortable feelings, making sure they don't make anyone feel threatened, which is so easy to do when you're a woman is like anything you do that's remotely competent is going to make somebody feel threatened. So you have to do this apologizing. And what matters is that the other people feel entitled to your apology and your smile and your calmness and your self-regulation. When Fiona Hill was testifying to Congress about this, she talked straight up like, unfortunately, when women are angry, they're often dismissed as just being over-emotional when actually they have a serious concern and so they don't get heard. Yes, it's been really interesting to watch some of the debates and, and some of the critique that's come up of just even, you know, snapshots of people's faces like, who's emotional here with these women with thoughtful expressions on their faces and men in just these outright meltdown mode. Yeah. Or, or yelling or. And should yeah. I, should I talk about Brett Kavanaugh? You can talk about whatever you want. That's why he, you're on the show. He came there and was just like angry and mad and sad and hurt and had all these feelings about my white masculinity has been attacked <laughs> by this woman who came in and very like calmly and rationally and politely was like, let me explain to you what happened. Let me explain to you what happened in my brain in that moment, which was why I had those experiences. And like, just like astonishingly caught and just performing as a human giver, as a helper, so perfectly, so flawlessly that people could not possibly attack her affect, which it could have been so easy to do. And that's, that is our task until we, you know, dismantle the entire patriarchy, we will still be in the role. And I don't want us to live in a world where everybody feels like they just get to like spit out their emotions as weapons against other people. I want us to live in a world where everybody feels responsible for tending to the well-being of everyone else. Because if you've had a long, hard day and you get home if you come home to a house full of other givers, of fellow givers, they're going to notice that you're exhausted. And they're not going to say, well, but what's for dinner? They're going to say, you go take a nap and then have a shower. We'll make the stew. After your shower and nap, you come down. We will have dinner and a glass of wine and we will talk about our feelings. And it's going to be awesome. When we are all cared for, when all the people around us turn with kindness and compassion toward our difficult feelings in the same way that we feel obliged to care for other people. That's where peace comes from, not from everybody feeling entitled to be as cruel and vicious as masculinity says men are supposed to be. I also think that, and this is perhaps consistent with your book that you wrote with your sister, Burnout, and the science on stress physiology, 
much like this idea of really being able to shake and release or bring to completion the stress cycle. Yes. And I highly recommend listeners read both of Emily and Emily and her sister's books. But I do, and maybe this is my upbringing as a New Yorker, but I I think that there's a certain release to being able to fully express rage, to be able to fully express sadness, to fully express grief. And if that means yelling and screaming for two minutes, it doesn't mean you have to do it at someone or in a way that makes them wrong or bad or small or hurts them. But I do believe that we need to discharge these emotions. I also just read a study on um, women in very difficult marriages. You know, there's been a lot of research over the years looking at the increased health risk of women who are in difficult marriages. And this particular study was fascinating because it, it says that it's not just being in a difficult situation, it's actually being in a difficult situation and not expressing yourself, not raising your voice, not using yes. your voice. It's being trapped. That's the problem, being stuck. Yeah, or unsafe. Exactly. Unable to change. And and that kind of comes back to autonomy that you talked about earlier, right? I mean, one of the biggest health measures is the ability to have autonomy. Yeah. Uh, Our definition of wellness is actually that wellness is not a state of mind. It is not a state of being. It's a state of action. It is the freedom for your body to move through the cycles and oscillations that are inherent in living in a mammalian body. That's the cycle of stress into stress in back to relaxation, back into stress, back into relaxation. It's not living in a state of like eternal Gwyneth Paltrow bliss. (laughs) It's when you get stressed out, which you're going to get, knowing how and having the opportunity to let your body go all the way through that so that it can transition hormonally, literally, physiologically, transition out of the stress response and into the relaxation response. But also in from attentive effort into rest, back to attentive effort, back to rest. We're not supposed to live in a state of like perfect, like peace and rest. We're not supposed to sleep all the time, but we are supposed to sleep. Now, I talk about it like a piece of elastic, you know, to, for elastic to maintain resiliency, it has to be able to stretch and then rebound to its resting state, stretch right. and rebound. And then it, you get a lot of uh, life out of it. And that dynamic process is that's normal. That's what normal looks like. And it's the same with connection. Oh, connection is complicated to talk about. But basically, the way Amelia and I have been able to wrap our brains around the research is to recognize that humans, yes, we are a massively social species. Jonathan Haidt calls us 90% chimp, 10% bee. We're basically a hive species. But we are built to oscillate into deep connection and back into autonomy and independence or even isolation back to connection and back to autonomy. It's interesting. It really explains why being a new mom can be so exhausting, especially when people are doing attachment parenting, right? You don't get that autonomy part of it unless you really cultivate it. All right. I want to switch gears again a little bit. It was kind of a thread that we were talking about, about women being emotional. And of course, as you know, listeners might not know, the term hysterical was actually used to define women's emotions as a disease and was rooted in our uterus. And this idea that um, when we express emotions, one of the ways that's described is as being hormonal, right? So mm-hmm. we've got a lot of um, cultural baggage where we blame our hormones for things. And one of the areas I'd love to talk with you about briefly, at least, is what I said I was saying in air quotes earlier, female sexual dysfunction, because for one, women who are going through female, whatever their own sexual challenges at the time may be diagnosed with something called female sexual dysfunction. But the history of this 
condition, if you will, is one of the classic examples of what we call the manufacturer of illness, right? So there was a pharmaceutical, next there was a condition, and next that pharmaceutical could be applied to that condition, and wham, it was in the diagnostic and statistics manual as something we can label women with. And there's so much to unpack around women's sexual health, and of course, this is what you do so tremendously in your book. Talk to me about female sexual dysfunction, A lot of women think that when they're having uh, sexual challenges in their life, whether that be response issues, uh, challenge experiencing orgasm, desire, libido, whatever we want to call that, that it's their hormones. But statistically, that's actually a pretty small amount of the time. Very rare. What's going on? And let's talk about culture, context, what women's experiences are. And also, what is that point in your work with women where you say, okay, maybe something is physiologic and let's explore this. And then how do you define that? I will start at the end. Please. Uh, When it's physiologic and I think there might be something going on there is when there's pain. If you're experiencing pain, talk to a great sex positive medical provider. It is unfortunate that a lot of women go to medical providers with sexual pain and their pain is dismissed. They're told that that's normal. They're told just have a glass of wine. Um, Use more lube. Do right. foreplay. I know I've had so many patients come to me with this, these stories that... Having been dismissed. And yes. the thing is there are evidence-based treat, based treatments for a lot of different sexual pain disorders if they can provide a provider who's willing to take their pain seriously. So if there's pain look for a physiological cause or at least a psychophysiological cause. I uh, I believe that physical therapy is the future of sexual pain treatment a lot of the time for people with vulvas. I couldn't um, agree with you more. I, I think pelvic floor physical therapy is yes. also is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. That's the place that people are ultimately going to end up when they're looking for treatment around sexual pain. Uh, that isn't just vaginal dryness, in which case, okay, so tearing, if you're menopausal, that's the thing that happens when estrogen levels get low, use more lube and talk with a medical provider about a hormonal intervention. Those are the sorts of like pain situations where, yeah, when it's desire, I have not found any particular evidence that there's any hormonal anything that is usefully predictive of sexual desire situations. Sometimes I find that low thyroid, if someone's just really tired in general, that can be associated. And then sometimes I find that if somebody's really just burnt out and exhausted, so maybe there's a cortisol piece to that. Yeah, but if you fix the tired, (laughs) there's a lot of ways to fix tired. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of causes of tired. And there's an interaction like, where do we identify the causality? Is it their actual thyroid? Is it the situation that is burning out their hormones? Mm -hmm. Is it the like combination of working a full-time job and raising two small children and being married to a partner who doesn't feel responsible for taking care of the second shift? Plus, God, when I was reading the sleep research, the sleep researchers use this phrase, the third shift. The first shift is, you know, your paycheck job. The second shift is the housework and childcare that keeps a family together. Mm -hmm. And the third shift is the time at night when we're all supposed to be asleep, but we are not all equally sleeping. Women are just expected to disrupt their own sleep. And increasingly, I hope people are all aware by now of how essential sleep is to our basic well-being. You want to talk about like hormonal impacts. What happens to your cortisol level when you're getting poor sleep? What happens to your adrenaline levels when you're getting poor sleep? 
depression, anxiety, which women experience at twice the rates of men are causally linked to sleep disruptions. So do we want to tie the cause to the hormone situation that happens as a result of the disrupted sleep? Or are we going to identify the culture that prevents women from having access to the sleep their body requires, the relationship where their partner's not showing up for them to get adequate sleep? I don't know where we want to like diagnose, but they're all the same story. And it, when I talk about like diagnosis, I like to situate the diagnosis in a place where intervention is going to direct intervention is going to create positive change. And very often, especially for women in like long term, maybe monogamous, not always, but sometimes monogamous relationships, the difficulty is not in them, especially like if things were great before, but it's been 10 years and things are not great now, it's almost never the case that something is wrong with an individual's body. It is nearly always the case that there's something that changed in the context in which their body is trying to operate. Exactly. I mean, a lot of women just say to me, look, the partner I married 30 years ago does not look physically appealing to me anymore. And they're really struggling with that, right? They're like, yeah, this isn't turning me on anymore. What do I do? I work with a lot of women around reframing expectations, being okay with fantasy. When I say reframing Mm -hmm. expectations, like what their partner looks like, you know, what is it that we buy into when somebody looks one way, but then maybe has less hair or a different body shape or the stressors in their life of caring for an older kid who may be having emotional challenges in college or as an adult or caring for older parents. Mm -hmm. There's so much that affects our context. Yeah. So the baseline way to begin thinking about the way sexuality functions is with the dual control model, the mechanism in our brain that governs sexual response. There's the sexual accelerator or gas pedal that responds to all the sexy information and sends the turn on signal. And then there's the sexual breaks, which notice all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. And it sends the turn off signal. So arousal is a dual process of turning on the ons, but also of turning off the offs. And when people are struggling around sexuality, sometimes it's because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator. Uh, And the thing is, all the things you were talking about can hit the brake. Stress is maybe the most common factor that hits the brake because it's so common. And so many of us think we're supposed to just be able to shut it off spontaneously and without effort, instead of allowing our bodies to go through a process. We think just because we've dealt with all of our stressors, all the causes of our stress, that means we've dealt with the stress in our bodies. And that's just not true. Unfortunately, evolutionarily, the things that deal with our stress are, they have almost nothing to do with the things that help us deal with our stressors in our lives. So we have to do intentional things to let our bodies complete the stress response cycle so that that can stop hitting the brakes so that our accelerators freed up to do what it wants to do. And then there's the body image piece. There's the like culturally constructed aspirational beauty ideal that shapes our perception of our own bodies and our partner's bodies. And the whole point of a long-term relationship, which many people aspire to is, you know, till death do us part which means that if you meet your partner in your 20s or 30s, those of us who are lucky enough to get old are going to watch our partner's bodies change and they're going to watch our bodies Mm -hmm. change. There's a wonderful book coming out in 2020 called Magnificent Sex by Peggy Klein-Plotz and Dana Maynard. 
in which they interview dozens of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives. And the average age at which they had their first extraordinary sexual experience, do you want to guess? I'm going to guess uh, 58, 62, somewhere around 55, there. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm cheating because I've read a lot of the literature. I'm sure you've read a lot of like the optimal sexual experiences research. Like it's an incredible body of research. I'm so excited about this book. But one of the most important ideas I got when I read it was recognizing that things we classify as disability or health issues, which so often can interfere with sexual functioning, won't necessarily. It's just about how you frame those body changes and the issues you may have with your health or with pain. So much so that people who have like COPD, for example, and use oxygen masks don't even perceive that as being something that interferes with their sexual well-being. It's just like part of who they are. And they don't let it be a thing that hits the brakes. It's just, that's just the body they have. And they access the pleasure that this body has access to. Shirley Chisholm had a quote which said something to the effect of we not only have to free ourselves from the stereotypes that our culture puts on us, but from the ones that we've come to believe. And it's really fascinating to me how many women, I think in a way, kibosh their own sexual experience with this internalized idea, which we have so many cultural visuals that reinforce of like, Mm -hmm. once you get to a certain age, you're not sexual. And every bit of this research that's coming out shows that 50 and above, you start having the best sex of your life. Yeah. And interestingly, I work with a lot of women in their 20s who really have just a tough time. They're, They're either not having sex as much as they would have expected or hoped for. It seems like there's a lot of digital devices getting in the way of connection and sex time. But sexual pain seems to be a really big factor for women, particularly young women, endometriosis, other causes of pelvic pain. And I know you talk a lot about that in your book. I get a lot of books sent to me. I actually bought your book um, initially. Oh. And then, yeah, and the PDF that you guys sent me was really helpful for you know just quickly reviewing to talk. But I get a lot of books sent and they end up on a kind of bottom shelf or get given away. And I think yours is just one of the the revelations of books that have come out, you know, along with, I think for me, I first started becoming aware of my cycle, got that wonderful hand mirror, all of that when I was 15, which is when I got a copy of two books. One was Our Bodies, Ourselves, of course. And another was a, a book, I don't think it's in print anymore, called A New View of a Woman's Body. And it was just photographs of vulvas, clits, um, it was like picture after picture of woman after woman. Uh, well, at that time, it would have been I did, you sure. know, biologically born women, to my knowledge of the book. But all cultures, all ages, it was really magnificent. I guess for me, I'm wondering, I had such a wonderful kind of very early in my life entree into sexual health. And I think I was, I became a midwife so young that I'm still so surprised sometimes at how uncomfortable women are looking at their bodies. I had an experience many years ago. This was around 97, 98. I had a woman who had grown up in a very religious kind of restrictive background, very body negative, particularly around women's bodies. And she was pregnant. She went into labor 
And when she went into labor, uh, she called me on the phone. She was planning a home birth and she was out of her mind with discomfort and anxiety and fear. So I went over and I checked on her and I did a pelvic exam at that time just to feel how her cervix was dilated because the way she was acting, I thought, you know, maybe she's actually just a lot farther along than I think she is. And maybe that's what's really going on here. And she was not dilated yet. And through our conversation together, through having known her through the pregnancy, something just struck me as this sort of intuition. One of the big things that was a big clue for me was um, toward the end of the pregnancy, she was really clear. She didn't want to see the baby coming out. She didn't want her husband to see her. And she told me her husband had never, they'd been married for like nine years at this point. And he had never seen her fully, mm. fully naked. So I was like, all right, there's a certain amount of ability to be comfortable with our sexuality and, and open up that does really facilitate a home birth for yeah. most women. And so at this point I was like, I'm going to give you this hand mirror. I'm going to go in the other room. And it was like the equivalent of giving someone who's exhausted, stressed, and been in labor for days an epidural and their body just opens up. It was like that. It was like the transformation of just looking at her yeah. vulva and getting comfortable with such a switch. She came out of the room. She's like, I had no idea. She's like, mm. it's really cool down there. It's really kind of beautiful. <laughs> and I was like, yes. And she went on to um, go into labor full on later that day. And she had a beautiful home birth that night. And what was really amazing was she gave birth with her husband sitting on the edge of the bed, her sitting in his lap with her legs spread open in front of a full length mirror. So I kept moving to the side so that she and he could see what was going on. It was Oh. transformative. I know that in your book, you talk about the mirror exercise. Tell me what you think is the role for this in women's sexual health and sexual awareness. I can say for me, when I was 18 years old, I did not have the early start that you had, but I did have the fortune that at 18, I was being trained as a pure sex educator and I was given the homework assignment to go home and look at my own genitals, which I had never done. And remember that when I had asked what a vagina was, my mother had responded with horror and disgust. So I, when I picked up that mirror, I felt like I was going to confront an enemy. Mm. I had never received an explicit educational anything that told me to feel disgusted or horrified by my genitals, but that was absolutely the message that I absorbed. And so I went and I looked and I instantly burst into tears because when I looked, I had the same experience that like, oh, it's just, it's just part of my body. It's really interesting. It's just normal and part of me and mine. And ever since then, I go back to that moment as the touchstone that no matter how much affective neuroscience I love to talk about, no matter how much I love endocrinology, ultimately the most important source of wisdom anyone has about their sexuality is their own body. If they can turn toward it with kindness and compassion and welcome it exactly as it is right now, instead of trying to make it into something that they think it is supposed to be. Your story actually reminds me of the ways that people who experience phantom limb syndrome, if they've had a limb removed, but they're still experiencing pain in that limb, if you put the intact opposite limb, so if your arm has been removed at the elbow, but you put your opposite arm in front of a mirror, so your brain can see in the reflection what it would look like if you did have that hand, it just like instantly 
the pain goes away. If we can just let our brains see what's happening down there, look, there's no tissue damage. You're okay. There's this really powerful, complex relationship between our emotions and our experience of pain, our brain's sense that there is danger. And if we can teach our brain that our genitals are, are not dangerous and we don't need to be afraid of them, it goes a long way in helping us to access pleasure and to reduce pain and shame and distress. It's so beautiful. I mean, there's so much um, research that shows us, and of course, women who have experienced trauma know this in their bodies fully, yes. the connection between what has happened to us, but also the connection between cultural microaggression, how we think about our bodies, how we think about our cycles, how we think about menopause actually shapes our physiology. Yes. It's astonishing. And when I talk about that research, it is it's complicated because on the one hand, it is absolutely true that our emotional framework for an idea shapes how it impacts our body. And that sounds a little bit like secrety, like you can manifest that if you're experiencing pain, it's because you have the wrong like beliefs and you're well, letting... And, and also I don't want it to sound like blame either because it right. can really quickly get into that as well. And it's absolutely not that either. It's really just right. basic pain physiology. It is. Yeah. And if I... I'm counting on medical providers and sex educators like me and therapists getting better and better at being able to talk about the relationship between our beliefs and attitudes and the way our physiology functions. It makes perfect sense if we believe that our body is dangerous and disgusting, that emotion is is not just like an idea. It exists in our bodies. Physiologically, there are hormonal and chemical changes that happen inside us because emotions are body processes. <laughs> like they exist physically in your body. Emotions, they're real. And I don't just mean we can't dismiss them. I mean, they physically happen in your body. So it makes perfect sense that if you're in one emotional state, that is to say one physiological state, that's going to change the way your brain perceives a sensation. We know to that to be true. Like with tickling, we can all accept that uh, if you're in like a sexy, turned on, playful state with somebody you really love and trust and they tickle you, that can feel great. But if that exact same person tries to tickle you when you're in the middle of an argument and you're really pissed off, that same sensation from that same person is just going to make you want to punch him in the face. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong there, but the context change, your chemical state change. So of course your perception of that sensation changed. You talk about Hyman truths in your book. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I really, until I read your book, hadn't thought about that. I had never had a woman or a, a mom or a, a young woman who I was doing a first pelvic on. Nobody's ever actually asked me, is her hymen intact? Is my hymen intact? So I, I learned something very new when I read that in your book. And I actually had not thought about the hymen at all until I was teaching my class at Smith College. And my first class is always the anatomy class. I show a bunch of pictures. Um, and a student raised her hand and asked about like the hymen in particular, how to break a hymen if you're, if you're having a sex with a partner who doesn't have a penis. How do you break a hymen? And I was like, why does this matter so much to people? Why is this a question people are being really persistent in asking? Mm. And like, it sort of confronted me with the idea that people really care a lot about the hymen. They have a lot of questions. And so it sent me down this rabbit hole. 
And it turned out everything I had ever been taught about the hymen was wrong, right? Like it does not change size just because a vagina has been penetrated. Some people are born without hymens. Some people who've given birth, their hymens are still intact. If a hymen does break, you know, it's tissue. What does tissue do when it gets damaged? It heals, right? Yeah, of course it does. It makes so much sense. It doesn't make any sense to imagine that it just breaks. Uh, except that that's what we get taught. And it's this beautiful example of the difference between the biological reality of our bodies and sort of the cultural script that we're handed about our bodies. Here is this fold of tissue that has no particular biological function and it's given so much cultural importance that a person's life can literally depend on the size and shape of this fold of tissue at the mouth of the vagina. Absolutely. In many cultures, people can, can be literally killed. killed. Yes, literally. Yeah. And this is sort of this cult of virginity and this double yeah. standard because nobody thinks about that with Right. And virginity boys. checks, even yeah. though, even though, as we now know, the size and shape of a person's hymen does not give us any information about whether that vagina has been penetrated. Which is just horrifying to think about the number of girls that have actually been yeah. murdered. And them. there's like a, a geek nerd part of me that's like, that's not even an accurate measure of the thing you're trying to measure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's an invalid test. So if there were three myths that you could say, all right, there are three myths that I really want to dispel for women, what would those be? First, that there is not necessarily a relationship between what your genitals are doing and how turned on you feel. And this is called arousal non-concordance. And when there is not a match between what your genitals are doing, like how much blood is flowing to your genitals or how wet your genitals are getting, when there's an, a mismatch between that and how you feel, how you feel is what's true and right. So if your genitals are responding and you're like, meh, you are right that it is meh. Mm-hmm. Just because you don't want to like what's happening, it doesn't matter what your genitals are doing. This is a phenomenon we are all very able to understand when it is any physiological experience other than sex. Like if it is, you know, a person bites into an apple and it turns out there's a worm in there, but their mouth waters, nobody's going to say, well, your mouth watered. So like, I mean, you just don't want to admit how much you like that worm. Mm -hmm. Like we, we, we all understand that uh, how a person feels is trumps what their genitals are doing, what their so physiology is So back to doing. paying attention and trusting and honoring what's... Yes. Or what and our body's telling us. Given the helper syndrome, human giver syndrome script, women in particular are prone to believing other people's opinions about their bodies more than they believe what their own internal experience is telling them. And this is permission to be like, it doesn't matter what your physiology is doing. You can trust what your internal experience is saying. So that's one, arousal non-concordance. And two, uh, I would say sexual desire. The script we're handed about sexual desire is that it's supposed to just appear out of the blue spontaneously. Uh, Erica Moen, the cartoonist who illustrated Come As You Are, draws spontaneous desire as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Boom! You just <laughs> want it. And that's absolutely one of the healthy, normal ways to experience sexual desire. But it's actually very common to experience this other way called responsive desire. Spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of pleasure. Responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. So instead of just being kaboom out of the blue, it's like you and your long-term partner are Saturday at three o'clock, you, me in the red, under red underwear, 
let's do this thing. And you lock the doors and you turn off the phones and you put your body in the bed. Oh, all right, let's go. And, uh, you know, your skin touches your partner's skin and your body wakes up and goes, all right, I really like this. I really like this person. That's responsive desire. And it is very typical of healthy, normal sex in long-term relationships. Couples who sustain a strong sexual connection over the long-term are not necessarily couples who constantly can't wait to get their hands on each other. They're really good friends who prioritize sex. They decide that it matters for their relationship, that they spend time just doing this slightly silly thing that humans do. And I think this is so important. Um, You're you're emphasizing long-term relationships. And also I would add to that um, women who have young children, because a lot of times oh, yeah. you feel touched out. And so your mm-hmm. desire to initiate just isn't there. And so you can think you have low libido, but actually you're really just more in that responsive place. And so I, yeah. I actually will often tired. <laughs> yeah. And, and similarly, when you're in that sort of perimenopausal, but especially postmenopausal place, maybe you do have a little vaginal dryness, maybe hot flashes woke you up six times the night before, maybe you have a lot on your mind. Maybe there is that sort of body image stuff going on. I really talk with couples at that point. And I, and I see this more in heterosexual couples. I see this less in women having sex with women, but in heterosexual couples, I really need to explain to the male partner, hey, this is on you to maybe do some extra like giving, nurturing, gift getting, making things sexy and special and reaching out because a lot of women will respond readily and pleasurably. Absolutely. This is the beautiful thing about responsive desire. If you can embrace it as like, this is a normal way that sexual desire functions in our relationship. Um, you ask yourself the question that Peggy Kleinplatz, the sex researcher and therapist, asks her clients, which is, what kind of sex is worth wanting? Nice. And then once you know the answer to that question, you can wonder, how do we create that in our relationship? It's so it's so beautiful. I think it's so liberating. We get such false ideas of sex, orgasm, pleasure, stimulation from pretty much every media source there is, every TV show, yeah. every movie. So to Literally really look at wrong. this, yes, as conversation, cultivation, and a choice is really beautiful. Okay, third myth. Uh, it's okay if you only I'm, have two. Picking, Those are pretty big ones. <laughs> is really is really difficult. That you have a moral obligation to conform to culturally constructed aspirational ideals for how you should look, how you should feel, and how you should behave. If you violate your role as a human giver, yes, our culture is going to try to punish you for violating your moral obligation to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. But if you can create what Amelia and I call the bubble of love, where you're surrounded in your family by people who welcome you precisely as you are, with your body precisely as it is, with your emotional state precisely as it is, and can create space for that freedom to move through the process of living in a mammalian body. That is all you need. You don't have to perform for all those strangers who will judge you. You need to create for yourself a pocket of beautiful, protected love where you are welcomed and accepted precisely as you are right now. Hmm. Emily, you wrote that you wrote come as you are because you're done living in a world where women are trained from birth to treat their bodies as the enemy. 
And you have created in your book this truly incredible bubble of love. I think that it's one of the most woman, body, human, sex-friendly and instructive um, books out there. And I did not have Emily on this show to promote her book. I don't do that. And um, I'm not paid to do this. I really love this book. And that's how I pick guests. So I really encourage everyone to read it and just own your body, own your pleasure. Emily, you um, in your bio and on your website say you offer training for individuals and professionals. For folks who want to study with you beyond your book, let's say there are professionals, what can we do? Most of the time when I do trainings, uh, especially at the professional level, there's a practice that invites me to come and work with a dozen or all of the medical providers in the practice or the therapists in the practice. And that's my favorite thing is to create like a day or two, like get together with your colleagues, cordon off some time when you're just going to spend time thinking about sex. It is a glorious moment of permission to learn about sexuality for a couple of days by setting aside all the other things you're going to do. So talk to colleagues and invite me. I love it. And everyone get Emily's book. Both of the books are wonderful. So it's Come As You Are. workbook. So if you're yes. really interested in 110,000 words of affective neuroscience, there's also just like a book full of worksheets, the Come As You Are workbook. Emily, thank you for chatting with me. I could truly pick your brain for hours. and That's my favorite thing to talk yeah. about. So Thank you so much for joining me and for the wonderful work that you're doing. Tell everyone how they can find you. Uh, I'm at emilynagoski.com and for social media, mostly I use Instagram where I'm just E. Nagoski. Thank you so much. Thank you. Gonna lift it up. has got me down. Gonna lift it up. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.